regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. to uh, another conversation on Datacast, and today I got a chance to chat with Josh Tobin. Uh, Josh is the founder and CEO of a stealth machine learning startup. Previously, he worked as a deep learning and robotics researcher at OpenAI and as a management consultant at McKinsey. He is also the creator of Postact Deep Learning, uh, the first course focused on the emerging engineering discipline of production machine learning. Josh did his PhD in uh, computer science at um, UC Berkeley, advised by uh, Professor Peter Bill. So, uh, Josh, I'm glad to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Awesome. So, uh, I just want to start out our conversation uh, and discuss a little bit about your uh, academic background. So, uh, you studied mathematics at uh, Columbia during your undergrad. Um, mm-hmm. I quickly going over your college experience. Yeah, um, studying math was great. It was. Uh, um, a chance to go really deep on something that I found really theoretically interesting. But I realized through that experience that actually I remember having a conversation with a, a professor of mine who, you know, I took a bunch of classes with and really looked up to. And uh, I was I was kind of asking for advice on, you know, I was thinking about becoming a mathematician when I graduated. And so I asked him, you know, oh, most mathematicians, you know, their work is ends up being in such a narrow subfield of math that you know it's it never really breaks out beyond that subfield and and really it never ends up most of the time being useful in the real world at all um and you know the hope like for real world um, applicability of of most math is that you know someone 30 years from now is going to discover how to use the math that you invented to do something in physics or do something in engineering or computer science. And that does happen, but it doesn't happen to, to most mathematicians. And so I was asking this professor about this. I was asking, you know, how, like, how do you, how do you square that, right? Like if you want to have an impact on the world and you want to do math, where is, where does that connection come from? Um, and he told me that for most mathematicians, you just, you actually just can't care about that, right? Like you have to do work that you, you have to do math that you find interesting. And you have to just not care about the impact, the direct impact that it's going to have on the world, because there's just no way for you to predict what um, someone is going to do with it four years down the line. And that was kind of one of the moments that made me realize that I was I was not cut out for a career in, in mathematics. I see. Uh, th- thanks for sharing that uh, very interesting insight. Okay. Yeah. So um, after you finished your degree at Columbia, you you spent two years uh, at McKinsey working as a management consultant. Um, just curious to learn how was that career phase of yours? Yeah, it was it was really interesting. I think you know, as, as I mentioned, I was on a academic track before the end of college, and when I realized that I didn't want to go and become a mathematician, then I didn't really know what I wanted to work on next. And I applied for a bunch of jobs, um, ended up working at McKinsey, 
And so it was a really good transition for me um, because it was in many ways, the polar opposite of, of doing math, you know, very, uh, very hands-on, very practical, lots of people problems, more so than technical problems. And so I learned a ton from that. Just, just one, just wonder, do you have a, any opportunity to kind of utilize the, um, the, the math knowledge that you learn um, uh, at McKinsey or, uh, or, you know, it's, it's poorly just uh, business work? No, I didn't really use any math at McKinsey. I would say that um, there, the similarity is in conceptual problem solving, mm. right? Take, take, um, take something that you have a goal of solving this problem. In math, maybe it's, you know, some theorem that you want to find out whether it's true or false and then prove that result. Or in business, maybe it's um, you want to understand how uh, your client can increase their profitability, right? And it's this very kind of abstract, nebulous question, and there's no roadmap for how to actually go and make progress on this problem. And so being able to understand, you know, what are the components that drive the answer, um, you know, breaking the problem down to those component parts and just going deeper on each of them. Um, but really being able to create that structure for yourself where it's like, not only do I know what the goal is, but I also know what I need to do in order to get to that goal. And then being able to drill down into each of those things um, at a high level is pretty similar, but there's no, there's no direct overlap at all, I would say. So, so after having that uh, exposure to sort of the business world, McKinsey, you, um, you make a decision to get back to grad school. And at this point, I believe you try to pursue a PhD in mathematics at, at Berkeley, which is all the way in the West Coast. I'm just curious, you know, you know, why did you make this decision? Yeah, I think I had a great experience at McKinsey, but I missed doing technical work. And one of the funny things about studying math studying pure math is that everyone thinks of it as being a really technical degree, but in reality, you know, I told people that I was basically a philosophy major who had four semesters of calculus. You know, I didn't, I didn't learn any useful uh, technical skills at all, right? I didn't really know how to program. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't have anything that I could apply the math that I learned to. Um, and so I, I realized that I wanted to, to write that wrong and go back to school to learn how to, use math to do something useful. And um, so I ended up, I, you know, I applied to schools that had strong math, but also strong sort of broader uh, engineering schools and ended up at Berkeley, started out in the applied math program. And, you know, the goal was to figure out something to apply math to. And that's, that's kind of how I ended up there. Uh, at some point during your PhD program, you should start out with applied math. You took a uh, robotic class with uh, Professor Peter Abdiel uh, and make a decision to switch into the computer science program instead. Uh, and you know, can, can you share that, uh, would you mind sharing that anecdote? So I, my first semester in grad school, you know, I, like I mentioned, I was sort of, I had this high level idea that I wanted to do math, but in a more applied context. And so I was, you know, I tried to spend my first semester looking pretty broadly at what that might be. And so I was um, doing a bunch of kind of numerical mathematics classes. And I also ended up taking a few machine learning classes because that just felt like an interesting place to try to take some, apply some math in the real world. And I ended up taking a class with Peter Abiel, um, who's a robotics and machine learning researcher at Berkeley and was just kind of immediately hooked on that field. It just seemed like, seemed clear to me that um, this is one of the most exciting fields that you can be in right now. Both the direct intersection of machine learning and robotics, 
right? Um, but then also machine learning more broadly, which just felt like it was going to have a huge impact on on business and the world over over the next you know ten or twenty years. Okay, so so I believe you had not much uh, have any sort of uh, like you mentioned practical slash uh, you know uh, technical experience in, in this case probably like pro programming experience before uh, you know make, making that decision to to study computer science. Uh, how was this uh, transition period look like for you? You know from from math to CS. How did you kind of uh, upskill yourself uh, to be adequate enough to 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 pursue the degree? Yeah, yeah it was it was really challenging. I think. I was, you know, I was kind of learning everything as I went, right? You know, in, in most of my classes, you know, there, there was, um, you know, machine learning, there's usually a math component and then there's an implementation component, um, a software component. And I was, you know, most of my classmates had a really easy time with the implementation component and um, maybe a harder time with the math component. And I was learning both. And so, you know, maybe, maybe in some ways the math background helped me learn, learn the math side of things faster. Um, and so I could really focus my effort on getting better at the implementation side of things. But it was it was a challenging first year of grad school. No, I just 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 want to put it in, into kind of a concrete context. I'm just curious like, how many hours you spend, I guess, on average per week, just to kind of pick up this this knowledge while doing, I assume, a lot of work on, on your research or your assignment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say that my approach was to learn by doing. Right. So I wasn't. Um, I was doing some work on the side, right? Like I was trying to go through some more basic computer science classes. Um, and I, I read a couple of software engineering books, but that was really, you know, a small minority of my time. I think my approach was more just, I'm going to try to do all of the work, all of my work for grad school. And I'm going to, but I'm going to try to focus my effort in that work in um, improving on the implementation side of things. And yeah. So how many hours, like all, all of the hours. <laughs> Yeah, so so my understanding that um, you know after you switched into your PhD in, in CS, you um, also started work um, working as a research scientist at OpenAI, and um, you know people in the ML field probably know about OpenAI because they are a very well known research organization, um, and the goal is to discover and enact the path to save uh, um, artificial general intelligence. Uh, how did this opportunity uh, come about? So at this point, I had switched into uh, into Peter's group at Berkeley. And he was going on sabbatical at OpenAI. And I, at, at the time, I was in the early stages of working on this, you know, sim to real transfer problem, which ended up being my most of my PhD work. And so, one of my one of my weekly meetings with Peter, he he came to me and he said, you know, he had already started spending most of his time at OpenAI. Said, you know, Josh, you should. Uh, I'm I'm not really sure that you're ready for this, but you should really try and and um, and come work at OpenAI because they have a project going on there that's really similar to what you're trying to do. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't come work with uh, OpenAI on this, then you're going to be competing with them. And honestly, I'm not sure that's going to go so well for you. So, you know, I went, I went, went into OpenAI, I started kind of informally collaborating with them. And, um, you know, that collaboration went well. And so I, you know, interviewed for an internship, I think I was like, you know, at the time, at least the least qualified person that they had ever hired. Um, and, you know, ended up doing an internship and the um, and kind of got an exciting paper out of that, and then stayed on full time. So you didn't have like a general like an idea that I want to go this. It just it just happened by uh, coincidence. Yeah, I think it was it was really just you know my advisor was spending time in both places, and he saw that there was an opportunity to um, combine efforts on this on this uh, sim to real transfer project. 
let's just start talking a little bit about you know some of that uh, early research work that um, you, you just mentioned. Uh, one of your earliest paper back in 2016 is called Transfer from Simulation to Real World Through Learning Deep Inverse Dynamic Models. So this paper presents a method to adapt action the policies developed in simulation to the physical world. Yeah, so can you share the, the motivation for this work as well as um, sort of the, the core contribution of it? Yeah, so um, the motivation comes back to the sim-to-real transfer problem. And so the sim-to-real transfer problem is if the goal is to do reinforce, reinforcement learning on robots, then the core challenge that you're presented with is that reinforcement learning is very data inefficient, right? And so you see all these kind of state-of-the-art results in um, computer games, and you know what's behind the scenes there is that the the agent that's learning the the behavior in those games is has access to hundreds of millions or more um, of examples uh, that are labeled with a reward and kind of guide it in the right direction for um, solving the task, right? And so coming back to robotics, right, if, if our goal is to use RL in robotics, that presents a huge challenge. Presents a huge challenge because, you know, it's, it's really difficult to come, up, come about uh, that much data in the real world because, you know, robots are expensive and, um, and so it's expensive to collect a ton of data uh, from them. Like one of, one of the approaches that we were that we were trying to push forward um, at OpenAI at the time was this idea of like, well, you know, we do have a way of generating a ton of data for, for robots, which is, you know, training the robots in a physics simulator. All right, so in a physics simulator, you have basically infinite data. It's very cheap. But, you know, the problem is that the data that comes from the physics simulator is not really representative of the real world, right? So, um, it's very difficult to super accurately model the dynamics of the real world in a physics simulator. And so there's always going to be some gap between how the, the world works in your physics simulator and how it works in the real world. Right. And so in machine learning, generally, like you have very few guarantees about how well your model is going to perform on data that looks different from the data it was trained in. And so if there's a gap between the data that comes from the physics simulator and the data that comes from the real world, then you shouldn't really expect that your model will do well in the real world if it was only trained in the physics simulator. And so this is kind of the motivation for the sim to real problem, right? Which is how do we overcome that gap by making the simulator better or by you know, maybe explicitly adapting the behavior that's learned in the simulator to the real world. And that adaptation was kind of the motivation for this paper. And so the idea was, you know, the typical setup that you have in reinforcement learning is you have an agent that interacts with an environment and it learns a policy that says, I'm going to look at the current state of the world and I'm going to map that to what action I should take in that environment. So the idea that we had for this paper was, well, if like the action that we choose in, uh, from the physics simulator might be wrong because the physics simulator is different than the real world. Um, so what if we can learn a way of choosing the right action in the real world? Um, and so the idea is, your policy that you learned in the physics simulator takes an action in the physics simulator and that moves it to a new state, right? So then that state, that next state of the world, right? So moving my arm from here to here, let's say, that becomes the goal for, for your inverse dynamics model. Mm -hmm. Inverse dynamics model says, like, I wanna move from this state to this state, what action will get me there, right? Um, and so what we, do, what we did is we took data from the real world and we used it to learn that inverse dynamics model. So the, the policy in the simulation said, given that I'm in this state, I want to take this action. And then the physics simulator said, 
given that I'm in this state and I took this action, this is the next state that I got to, right? And then the inverse dynamics model said, okay, given that this is where I'm starting and this is where I want to get to, this is the action that I need to take in order to get there. And so it was like a more data efficient way of, of uh, using real world data to learn a policy. Awesome. Thanks, thanks for sharing kind of context. I think having that sort of uh, formulation of the same zero problem is, is very important to kind of set the context for the rest of our talk because a lot of your work throughout your, your, your PhD and your work at OpenAI is kind of focused on, on that idea of like transforming um, yeah. data from, from simulator to into the real world, right? Um, yeah, so kind of following that work, you know, I believe one of your most uh, popular paper, which has been cited more than 600 times at the, up until now, is called Domain Randomization for Transferring Deep Neural Networks from Simulation to the Real World. And, and so, um, you know, upon up reading about it, so my understanding is that uh, Domain Randomization is a technique for training models on simulated images that transfer to real images by randomizing rendering in the simulator. Um, and just, just reading from that, from that uh, paper, uh, I believe your main argument is that with enough variability in simulator, the real world may appear to the model as just another variation. So, um, you know, can you unpack your thesis and, you know, why do you think domain randomization works so well uh, for, for this problem? Yeah. Um, so I think that basically I have a couple of intuitions for why domain randomization works, um, but I think there's some missing theory here. And so I think if anyone is, uh, you know, if anyone is starting a PhD now, um, this would be an interesting topic to work on. But I think the, the intuition is that, you know, so the, the, the high level idea, is, as you said, is you massively randomize the simulator, right? So you, you know, if, if the goal is to pick up an object from a table, then you would randomize everything that's not essential to doing that task. So maybe the color and texture of the object, maybe the position of the object on the table, the uh, background of the scene that the camera is looking at, the position of the camera, maybe the intrinsics of the camera, the lighting conditions, essentially anything that, you know, you're essentially trying to like figure out what is the essential piece of the scene that the robot needs to understand in order to solve the task and randomize everything else as much as you possibly can. Right. And so the, um, so the, the intuitions for why this actually works are, um, you know, I think in some sense you're telling the model what it needs, what features of the scene it needs to ignore. So, if, you know, in general, like if you train a neural net on some camera images, the neural net, like neural nets are kind of lazy, right? They'll pick up on any signal in the scene that, you know, even if you as a human don't think it's important, that will help them solve the task more easily, right? So for example, um, you know, if, if your object in the scene is always like one particular shade of blue, um, then that's like very likely going to be essential to the way that their neural net solves the task is like reading that one shade of blue. And so by randomizing the colors in the scene and like sort of randomizing everything non-essential about it, you're saying like, hey, you know, this, this part of the scene, this color, this lighting condition, whatever, this is, um, you need to ignore this, right? Because it's going to be unreliable. And so if you make that feature unreliable, then the neural net is going to be forced to use other information in order to solve the task. And so, you know, in the sim to real transfer problem, right? Like, you have all these things that are different between the simulator and the real world. Um, like your rendering is not perfect. And so what this technique is doing is it's allowing you to, to, to tell the neural net which parts of the scene it should be using to make its decision and which parts it shouldn't. That work actually has been applied to 
you know, a variety of, of, of system being used at OpenAI. Kind of following that paper, uh, there was a blog post titled uh, Robots That Learn. So, so it talks about robotic system trained entirely in simulation and deployed on a physical robot that can learn new tasks after seeing it done once. Um, so I believe, you know, this system can incorporate uh, domain randomization with another algorithm called uh, one-shot imitation learning, mm-hmm. which essentially allows human to communicate how to do a new task by performing it in uh, virtual reality. So, uh, you know, could, could you mind, uh, I believe, you know, you were contributing a little bit on, on this uh, development system. So can you discuss the, um, the, the development and the deployment of the system uh, in, in final details? Yeah, so the, this, this blog post was, um, one of the other researchers had a paper called One-Shot Imitation Learning. And the idea of that paper was you um, essentially do meta-learning of, um, of an imitation policy. Um, and so, you know, basically the idea is that you, like, you learn over many, many instances, different instances of the same task, where you see an example of someone solving that task, and then you have to solve it from a different initial uh, configuration. Um, and then the idea is that at test time, you should only really need to see one example of the task that you're supposed to solve, and then you should be able to solve it from any configuration. So concretely, an example of this is block stacking. You know, let's say you have a bunch of different blocks of different colors, and the goal of the task is to stack them in some particular order. So what you would like to be able to do is watch um, a demonstration of someone teleoperating a robot to solve the task. And then you should be able to put the, the blocks on the table in some completely different configuration, and then run the policy from that different initial configuration and ha- reach the same um, goal state, right? So the same order of blocks in the tower. Um, so this is what the one-shot imitation learning paper al- allows you to do. And the thing that we wanted to do was demonstrate that this could work in the real world, right? Not just in simulated environments. And so, you know, and so essentially to do that, we um, trained a policy in simulation that looks at the positions of all the of all the blocks on the table, and then that uses that to make its decision about where to move the gripper of the robot. So, like where to put the next block. And so, the the one thing that's missing in order to make that work in the real world is you actually need to know where the blocks are on the table, and that's the piece that we used uh, sim to real transfer for, right? So we uh, train we put a camera in front of the table, we trained a policy um, or we trained a uh, a neural net rather that looks at that image of the table and predicts where each of the blocks of different colors are on the table, and then feeds that information into a separate neural net, which is the block stacking policy. I see, yeah, and, and in the blog post, I think you mentioned that uh, the first one is the vision network that do uh, sim to real, and then the second one is the uh, imitation network that do the uh, imitation learning pathway. Right? Yeah. Um, I see, yeah, and then that's also a very nice video to talk about it, so I'll be sure to include that in the show notes so people uh, and have a chance to, to, to just watch and kind of learn how, how the system works uh, end-to-end. So the, the next research project that you were involved with, and, and this part is towards the end of 2017, uh, is called um, HiSci Experiment Replay, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a technique that uh, can deal with uh, sparse and binary reworks in reinforcement learning. And I believe this is kind of one of the problems uh, of, of real-world uh, IR algorithms. Uh, and there's also uh, a, a concise blog post called Generalizing from Simulation that kind of demonstrate why this technique is, is crucial for, for, for doing RR in, in challenging environment. So uh, can you reveal the background for it along with some of the uh, conducted experiments? Yeah, so the, the idea of this paper is um, in a lot of reinforcement learning settings, 
if you think about what the goal of the agent is, it's to solve some task. And then the most natural reward is just um, at the end of the episode. So once the robot is done attempting to do the task, um, did it solve the task or not? Right. And so it gets a reward of one if it solved the task and a reward of zero if it didn't solve the task. Now, this is sort of the most natural way to formulate the reward function for a lot of problems um, for humans, but it's a really challenging way of formulating those uh, of, it's a really challenging reward function formulation for reinforcement learning agents. Because if you think about the signal that a reinforcement learning agent gets after it attempts to solve a task, if your reward is binary, so if it's, you know, only, if it only gets a reward if it solves the task, then if it doesn't solve the task, right, so if it like attempts to solve the task but doesn't quite get there, then it doesn't get any signal at all about whether it's close to solving the task or, um, or not. Right. And so the way that traditionally the way that reinforcement learning researchers have gotten around this is they shape the reward function. So they, they give the agent some notion of how close it is to solving the task. So maybe it's like the distance to the goal or something like that. And if you do that, then when the robot um, fails to solve the task, then it has some notion of whether it was closer this time than it was last time. And so it can use that as a signal to um, direct the direction so to 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 um, to learn which actions made more sense and which ones didn't. So that's traditionally the way that people have done it. But um, shaping reward functions is really challenging. One thing that would be nice is if we had a technique that could deal with reward functions that are um, that are not shaped. So the idea of hindsight experience replay is that we need to find some way of providing the robot a signal when it didn't solve. The, the task that it set out to solve. Um, and so the, the way that we did that was, we thought of it as, um, you know, if you fail at solving the original task that you set out to do, then you've still done something, right? You've still done, you've still moved your arm somewhere or pushed an object somewhere, just not where you originally intended to, um, to do it. And so the, the insight is that you can treat that, you can treat that um, episode or to that attempt as a successful attempt at solving a different task, right? So you didn't solve the task that you set out to solve, but you solved some other task. And then that gives you a reward signal that you can use um, to, to train the robot, right? So you need to parameterize. So basically you need an environment where you can parameterize, where you can parameterize your goals. So you can say like, okay, if my goal was to get here, then this is a successful attempt. Um, and then you can use that as the signal for learning your behavior. No matter what, every single attempt is, is a success, right? It's a success at some task, right? Some task. And, and then the goal is to, um, uh, to you know, like over time, you're, you learn that if you take this sequence of actions, mm -hmm. then that um, allows you to solve this particular task. And so then you, you, like the robot learns that it can, you know, if it wants to get to this state, then it can take this sequence of actions. Um, and then its goal is just to move that um, closer and closer to the the actual state that you, the actual goal that you want to solve. Yeah, uh, neatly, neatly thinking. Yeah, and then I, saw, I saw a video I think released by OpenAI that kind of having having that visual a display of uh, you know that that in, in more uh, uh, appealing way. So so I uh, be sure to put that here as well. Is anyone interested in kind of learn you know what what you just mentioned? Continuing with sort of the topic of domain uh, randomization. Uh, one of your paper in 2018 is called Domain Randomization and 
generic models for robotic grasping. And so in this one, essentially, you know, Jatim proposed like a data generation pipeline for training a neural networks to perform uh, robotic graphs planning. And the idea is you want to randomize uh, object, apply domain randomization to object synthesis. And so the paper also proposed an autoregressive graph spanning model that can map sensory input of a scene to a probability distribution over possible graphs. Uh, yeah, so can you uh, give an overview uh, about sort of the, the, the generation pipeline as well as the approach? Yeah, so two ideas here, right? So one is in robotic grasping, one of the challenges is where do you get objects from, right? So, you know, if, if you're learning to grasp in the real world, then you're limited by the number of objects that you have in order to try to grasp with. Um, if you're learning in simulation, then you're limited by the size of the data set of object meshes that you have. And our intuition was that one of the reasons why grasping is still challenging is because no one had really trained a robot yet on a big enough data set, like a large enough number of objects that you could reasonably expect a neural network to generalize to it to any new object. Um, right, like in you know, image classification, for example, it's really not until you get to hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions of images before you expect your neural net to really do well on images that it's never seen before, um, at least ones that are that are um, they're very varied. And so our intuition is maybe the same thing is true for objects. So then the question is, where do you get a massive, massive data set of objects? And our our thought was, you know, building off of the first domain randomization paper that maybe the way to do that is not to try to collect a huge data set of objects. Maybe instead you can actually synthesize that data set. Um, and so the way that we did that is we created an object generation pipeline that essentially takes um, you know, random meshes and then uh, places them alongside each, each other. So it creates these kind of weird, kind of crazy looking geometric objects that um, they kind of look like maybe like you know, airplane parts or something or you know, not not some not like household objects that you'd be uh, expect a robot to be able to pick up, and then you train a robot to pick up random objects like that, like millions and millions of them, um, and then the hope is that at test time, when the robot sees some realistic object, it's learned enough about sort of geometry and what points of objects are graspable that it'll be able to figure out where to grasp um, objects in the real world. Um, so that's kind of the first idea is like, how do we generate a massive data set of objects to train a robot on? And the second idea is in grasping, right? Like for many objects, there's multiple ways of grasping that object that are equally likely to be successful, right? So imagine you have a box and then you have a robot gripper. You know, you can grip the object like this or you can rotate your gripper by 90 degrees and grip the object like this. Both of those are successful grasps. And so the challenge that presents is that if you want to just think about a standard like regression neural net, then it's, you know, then like if you have data, a data set that has this grasp being successful and this grasp being successful, that's actually multimodal, right? Because the one that's halfway between those, the 45 degree angle might bump into the corners of the box. And so, you know, regression neural nets are not great at learning multimodal outputs. And so the idea is that the idea that we had was, you know, instead of predicting a single best grasp, instead let's just say like, okay, for every possible grasp, what is the likelihood that that grasp will be successful? And so that's kind of what led to this idea of uh, this like basically um, generative model over the space of grasps um, that we learned. So in July 2018, uh, OpenAI released um, 
Ducktail, which is a reinforcement learning system that can manipulate objects using a shadow dexterous hand. And um, you know, I learned that here that domain randomization was used to help you know Ducktail to rearrange objects entirely in simulation without any human input. And you know, there's a lot of press about, about this work, I think, you know, over the internet, a lot of videos and, and, and blog posts. Uh, so, you know, um, you know, can you uh, describe how, how the system works uh, under the hood as well as some of the challenges during this design? I think at a high level, it's very similar to the block stacking work that I described earlier, right? So there's two separate neural nets. One that's a state estimator that takes camera images of the scene and turns those into some sort of state representation. And then the other, that's a policy. Um, and in this case, the policy takes, you know, the state representation, which is things like the orient position and orientation of the cube, the and position of the fingers, and translates that into an action that the robot should take next. And so um, those, two, those two neural nets, so the, the state estimator and the policy, are both trained using um, entirely in simulation using domain randomization. Um, and so for the state estimator, it's randomizing really similar things to what I described earlier. So it's randomizing lighting, it's randomizing textures, it's randomizing you know, position and orientation of the cube and things like that. For the policy neural network, it's actually randomizing a very different set of things. It's, it's actually randomizing the physical properties of the system. So things like um, you know, friction, damping, maybe the mass of certain objects um, and things like that. And so the idea is that you train a policy on um, that every time it interacts with the environment, it's sampling a different set of physical parameters for the environment. Um, so every world that it interacts with has different laws of physics, basically. Um, and so you give that neural network some type of memory. Right, so in, in our case, the neural network was an LSTM. But what that allows it to do is to spend its first you know, few actions um, learning about the physics of that environment. Um, and then once it has, once it's kind of understood a little bit of like, okay, in this particular version of the world, like this object is super heavy, then it can use that information in order to solve the task. Um, and the intuition is that in the real world, you know, even though it's never seen that particular, um, those particular physics, right, because we can't perfectly model the physics of the real world in our simulator, it's learned some policy that generally allows it to adapt to the physics that it does see in the real world. I'll be sure to, to, to kind of put a blog post called Learning Dexterity on, on the show notes, because I think there's a very great, you know, description of how the, the from, from a technical point of view, how, how the system works. Um, it seems like uh, just like a lot of training time, at least in terms of computational complexity, in order yeah. to, 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 to get the robot hands, you know, working in a, that, that can surpass human baseline evaluation matrix, I believe. You left OpenAI last year, reflecting on, 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 on your time there, how would you kind of sum up your experience at OpenAI um, in a few sentences? Yeah, it was great. I, I think it's um, one of the most talented groups of people working on uh, AI anywhere in the world. And so I feel really lucky to have spent some time working with them. I see. Most recently, one of your most recent research is a paper called uh, Geometry Aware Neuro, Neuro Rendering, uh, presented in Eris 2019. Uh, and so this research tackled the neuro rendering problem uh, of understanding the 3D structure of the world implicitly. Uh, yeah, so what, what is the core contribution of this paper? 
Yeah, so the, the high-level setup is you, you have every data point is a new scene. Um, so you might be looking at different objects, you know, your cameras are in different positions, et cetera. And then the goal is given only a really small number of images of that scene, so maybe you see the image from three different viewpoints, predict what that scene would look like from any other arbitrary viewpoint around it. So essentially it requires that the neural net has some sort of deep understanding of 3D geometry and has some priors for what the other sides of things should look like and stuff like that. And so the core contribution was in, in previous work that neural net essentially just looked like what you'd expect a convolutional neural network to solve that task to look like great. Right? You know, it, it, um, uh, it maps each of the images of the scene into a lower dimensional space. It adds them together, passes through them uh, that representation that's created through some other neural net in order to produce the rendering from some other viewpoint. Um, and our idea was, uh, well, that that's great, but what might work better is if we can inject some knowledge of the 3D geometry of the scene into the structure of the neural network itself. Um, and so that's kind of figuring out how to formulate that was the core contribution of that paper. I see, and I believe uh, the, the previous work that you mentioned, it was um, generative query networks, right? Which is the work yeah. from DeepMind. And uh, the idea is you want to bring the attention into the, the geometry of, uh, of the environment in order to make it more efficient in, in terms of uh, determining uh, how, to, how to understand the scene. Yeah. Yeah, so, so besides doing, uh, I guess, doing research, you also uh, have given talks in, in a variety of conferences and, and summit. Uh, so I just want to quickly uh, go over a couple of them. In one of your talk at the 2018 uh, LDV Vision Summit last year in New York called uh, Synthetic Data or How Computer Vision to Make the Jump to the Real World, you, you kind of outlined some of the main research direction for using synthetic data in computer vision. And we, we kind of talked a little bit about that, you know, throughout this whole conversation this idea of, you know, how do you uh, generate a lot of synthetic objects, uh, you know, both come previous work you mentioned. So, uh, yeah, what are the big takeaways uh, in that talk? Yeah, I think, we, I think we covered most of them already, right? I think the talk is mostly about um, uh, domain randomization and some of the applications, um, both that we worked on at OpenAI and at some other places. In another talk, this one is given at ReinforceCon 2019 in Budapest. You talk about troubleshooting deep neural networks and Essentially, you presented a mental decision trees to debug and improve the performance of neural networks. And you actually also have a, a very neat guideline on, on your website, kind of, you know, showcase your, your, your idea. Yeah, so um, maybe can you give a brief summary of, the, of this guy for those who are not familiar with it? Yeah, I think that at a very high level, the, the goal of the guide is, you know, I think the, the first question um, that I try to answer is like, what actually makes it difficult to troubleshoot neural networks? neural networks, right? Like everyone talks about how hard it is, even really good practitioners spend most of their time on it. So what, you know, why is that? Why is it so hard? Um, and I think the, the answer that, um, that at least that I believe is that the reason why troubleshooting neural networks is so hard is that when you see an error, right? So when you see performance that you don't expect, your model performs worse than you expect or even better than you expect, um, then there's many different competing sources and causes of that error, right? So it could be a bug in your code, it could be a bug in your data set, it could be just that your data set is too difficult, um, it could be that you haven't chosen the right hyperparameters, and you know, several other things, right? Um, so that makes it really, really difficult to troubleshoot, right? Like, okay, my loss is, maybe it doesn't look the way I expect it to, to look, what should I do about that? And so the, the high-level philosophy that, that I present in more detail in, in, this, in this guide is and in that talk is essentially, um, 
what you should do is you should start like really, really simple, you know, with the simplest possible data set and model for your task. Um, something stupid simple, right? Like that, uh, there's no chance that you can make a, a bug in how you implement it. And then very, very gradually layer on complexity, both in the data set, um, the data pipeline, and also the model itself. So that every time that you add something new to the model or to the data set, if that causes performance to not be what you, uh, what you expect, you have like isolated what is the, the source of that error. Um, and then you, it makes your debugging task much easier. Awesome, I, I, I really enjoy the sort of the, the, the way you inject the, the science aspect of how you debug neural nets. I think that's uh, valuable for, for anyone, any researcher or practitioners who want to understand more on how, you know, how, how to get level, level performance or how they can improve the, the research they, they're working on. In, uh, in one of the talk you gave at the sim 2 real workshop last year in 2019, you, you, you talk about sort of what are the, what is the, some of the limitations of domain randomization and you know, what are the future solutions look like? Uh, yeah, so I'm just curious, would you mind quickly addressing you know, some of the future ideas that people might contribute beyond uh, domain randomization? Yeah, um, you know, I think when you, um, when you look at how domain randomization actually works in practice, right? So there's a few steps. Um, so the first thing is you need to build simulated world that your robot is going to learn from. And then once you build that simulated world, you know, it needs to be like reasonably close to the real environment that you're going to interact with. So you need to somehow calibrate the real world to, uh, or calibrate the simulation to your real environment. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it has, you know, you at least have to get it reasonably close. And then you need to design what randomizations you're going to choose in order to kind of cover the variability of the real world. So what things are you going to randomize? How much are you going to randomize them? And then you, you know, then you, once you have your world and your randomizations, um, then you train a model um, in that randomized world, and then you evaluate it in the real world. What happens in practice is that usually there's like kind of an outer iteration loop around that where, you know, you look at the failure modes of your model in the real world, and you try to reason about like, okay, um, if my robot didn't do this piece of the task correctly, then like what additional randomizations can I add that might make it easier to, um, to do that part of the task. So there's this kind of like outer loop of kind of human intuition about like, where should I add randomizations? Um, and so think about what, what are the limitations of this technique? The big one is that it's very manual, right? And so there's a lot of steps of the process where you need to inject um, human knowledge and intuition, um, like primarily in how do you design randomizations? And so if you, it, you know, with that as sort of a, a framework for what's, broken about domain randomization right now. Um, there's a few directions that I think are exciting to try to mitigate that. One is, you know, this, this world building process itself. So how do you create a simulated version of the real environment is very challenging. And so I think there's, there's like one line of research that I think is really interesting is, can you take some data about the real world, right? Maybe some images of the real world and turn that into the simulated representation of the world. Um, so automatic world building. I think that that's one really interesting direction to improve domain randomization. You know, the, the second problem was how do you actually calibrate the, um, the simulated world to the real world and how do you choose what randomizations to, um, to, to use? And so I think figuring out how to automate that process is another interesting research direction, right? So again, can you use data from the real world 
or you know maybe can you do some sort of adversarial learning that will allow you to automatically select what randomizations uh, you should use and how much you should randomize them. Um, so you know automatically choosing randomizations given some real world data or not given some real world data is another interesting research direction. Yeah, in in, in that gala you you include a bunch of good frontier papers that that uh, address some of this you know potential limitation that you mentioned and uh, you know be sure to put that here and so anyone who interested in reading more about that can get a chance to follow through. So you know reflecting on your research career thus far, uh, you know what could be your advice for any individuals who want to make an impact in in the uh, research community. I would say it's really important to work on the right problems. And one mistake that a lot of researchers make, especially early, early on in their careers, is choosing to work on problems because they're popular problems to work on. And in many ways, that's the opposite of what you should be trying to do as a researcher, right? Like your goal as a researcher should be to try to find problems where If you can solve those problems, then it'll have a big impact on the way that people look at the field and solve problems in the field. In order to choose the right problem, do you think is there any particular factors? Obviously, you know, there's a very high degree in terms of your own personal interests. But let's say uh, I'm, I'm just you know curious to you know be besides your sort of our personal interests, with any other you know, kind of like the research environment. The, the, for example, you have a, a great influence by, by your advisor. You know, maybe can, can you expect a little bit more on, you know, to, uh, some of the factors that might also contribute to the decision of choosing, you know, the, the right problem to work on? Yeah, I think you, you brought up a really important one, which is, uh, you know, I think as a researcher, research is a really hard skill to learn. You know, there's no, you can't really learn it from from a book, I mean, you can kind of try to, you can teach it to yourself and some people do that really well, but most people who become successful researchers um, are mentored by other successful researchers to get there. And so I think going and working with the best researchers that you can is, is really important. I think, you know, other factors that, that impact your ability to do this well, I think one, one mistake that I see people make is that, um, is focusing a little bit too much on trying to keep up with ever, like all of the latest research that's happening. Um, so I, I get questions a lot around like, you know, oh, there's like thousands of papers coming out every week. How do I stay on top of all the papers that are coming out? And my answer to that is, and I, not everyone agrees with me on this, by the way, but uh, my answer to that is just like, don't, don't even try to do that. Um, you know, you have, there's like, there's a relatively small number of core principles in machine learning and your goal should be to learn those really, really well. Um, and then, you know, and then to think about problems that, um, are like maybe even obvious problems in the field, um, but try to come up with different ways of approaching them. Um, and I think, you know, if you're working on a particular sub problem, right, like if you're working on object detection or something like that, then yeah, you should, you should at least keep an eye on what, you know, what's the state of the art in that field. But I think trying to, you know, spending too much time trying to like understand what everyone else is doing is a way to, to work on um more incremental stuff mm, awesome well yeah thanks a lot for kind of you know elaborating more on on, on that idea of focusing on the the uh, you know a, a first principle thinking 
that, that uh, I think I think you know a lot a lot of us or like you know people who are younger in the field need to hear to just make sure that uh, that the direction is, is moving in, in in the right lane. I suppose yeah. And lastly, you know you um, you're co- a co-organizer of Full Stack Deep Learning, uh, which is a training program for engineers to learn about production ready deep learning. Uh, what is the inspiration behind it and um, how can people learn more? Yeah, so this, this came about around two years ago. OpenAI was kind of going through a transition point where, you know, when I first joined, it felt very much like a, an academic research lab, um, a very well-funded academic research lab. And at some point, the organization figured out that it needed to do something a little bit different than that, which is to work on these bigger, more ambitious projects with larger teams, bigger budgets. And as part of that transition, we were were really trying to figure out, like, how do we professionalize our process around building machine learning models, right? So how do you um, collaborate on ML code bases with a large number of people? How do you write good tests for machine learning code and things like that? And so I was swapping notes about those questions with my advisor uh, and with another of our friends, um, Sergey Karev, who was running a... um, machine learning and education startup called Gradescope at the time. And what we realized is that there's this whole emerging engineering discipline around machine learning. That's, you know, you can go online and learn the math and the algorithms behind things, and you can learn how to write code in TensorFlow. But um, in order to actually get this stuff to work in practice, there's this whole other set of things that you need to do. And everyone is kind of reinventing the wheel on this stuff. Um, and the number of people that know how to do it really well is super small and they have, you know, most of them are at big tech companies, right? And so we thought it would be really good for the field if we wrote down everything that we knew about this and everything that our friends knew about it and, um, turn it into a course. That was kind of the, the, the origin of full stack deep learning. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you and Sergey has been teaching this bootcamp for three times now. Do you, do you uh, hope to continue in the future and, uh, yeah, how can people learn more? Yeah, we'll see. It's uh, you know, it's it's a difficult time to do in-person boot camps. Um, but yeah, I think there's we're definitely going to do something with the content, and uh, and hopefully we'll be able to do something to maintain the community as well. But TBD, what exactly that looks like? So so at this point about chat, I just want to move into the closing segment in which I'm just going to ask you like um, three rapid fire questions, and you can just you know give tactical answers for them for people who. Um, uh, we're listening. The first question is that name three people in the machine learning and AI universe whose work you really admire. Yeah, I'll go with um, three people that I've worked with. So Peter Abiel, Ilya Suskever, and um, Lucas Bewald. The second question is that name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. I would say Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And uh, lastly, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring machine learning researchers on Twitter. What would you tweet about? I would tweet about the value of perseverance. Yeah, I think it's um, one of the biggest failure modes I see for more junior researchers is they have good ideas. Um, but they give up on those ideas too early because it feels like things aren't working. And I would just say that uh, feeling like things are not working is a um, very natural and important part of almost every single research project that I've ever worked on.
Yeah, I think that's a great way to sort of end our conversation. I really enjoy just sort of learning a bit about your, your educational background, Justine at McKinsey, your transition into learning computer science, your PhD at Berkeley, a bunch of interesting research work on, on the same type of problem and in the invention of domain randomization, as well as first principle advice on, on how to make a dent in, in the AI research community. And uh, I'll be sure to put all the resources in terms of your you know, your blog post guy and, and a variety of other information uh, on, on the show notes so people can have a chance to kind of, you know, listen and, and learn more about this. And, and I guess the more, you know, the more the work getting out there, the, the better the, the community can benefit from. So yeah, Josh, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, spending your time in quarantine talking with me today. And Great, hope, yeah, thank you. Hope you have the best rest of your day, yeah. Yeah, same to you. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now. 